Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast for the final time in 2018. This is going to be a two-part episode, and they are extra long episodes, or just slightly longer than normal episodes, but had the super original idea to do a clips show. We're going to highlight our best interviews, best moments of the year, just in general kind of compiling all of what we think this podcast is all about all in one place. There's a huge mix of stuff within this uh, there's LPGA, PGA, Web.com. There's architects. There's statisticians. There's you know Champions Tour players. There's young players, old players, major champions. And one thing I noticed was that despite being in the room for all of these interviews, and despite listening back to them when I'm editing them, and listening back several times throughout the year, I, I drop in from time to time just to just to keep things on on top of my mind. I'd forgotten about a lot of the things that were said, a lot of the conversations that were had, a lot of the laughs that were had. So uh, if you're feeling encouraged too, I encourage you to go back and go to these episodes. I'll try to include the episode numbers as I introduce each clip. Uh, the clips that you'll hear are going to vary a lot in length. There's some that are funny, some are serious, some are sad, some are just things that I think are good things to take away. And uh, best of all, I, first of all, I guess I got to want to say a big thank you to all the listeners this past year. It's been a crazy year, obviously, for us. And the first year of doing this full time uh, was definitely a success on our end. And that is that's because of you guys, the listeners. I know that's cheesy to say, but legitimately, we couldn't do any of this without the the fan base that is willing to download these things at a rate that we could not have ever predicted and uh, you guys off, often ask how you can help support us, how you can support the show. You can, of course, shop in our pro shop, but I think also the best way is just to tell a friend. I think <laughs> somehow you guys, each of you managed to do that, I guess, in this past year because our subscribership somehow doubled the last year. And uh, it's it's so encouraging. And just to kind of get that feedback from you guys, is to, uh, it motivates us to keep it going and to try to make it better every day. And we have some big plans for this, obviously, into the next year in 2019. So, uh, And I'd be remiss to not thank our partner, Callaway, for all that they do to support this show. You guys are very well aware of the partnership between the two of us and their uh, presence in our content. And I honestly, I don't have enough good things to say about what it's been like to work with them. A lot of podcasts have a lot, a lot, a lot of advertisements, a lot of reads and constant interruptions. And thanks to Callaway, that's not how this show is structured. And legitimately, like all the things you're about to hear in here would not have been possible if it weren't for the people at Callaway who did not have to take a risk on us. They did. Uh, we somehow didn't screw it up. This partnership is going to continue into the new year. But again, not only have we really enjoyed the products, it's the culture that we wanted to be a part of. And Honestly, we, we can't thank those guys enough and any support you guys can give them in that manner. Apparently, you guys are doing that as well because they just had their two best years maybe that they've ever had. Um, coincidence that the two years they're partnered with us? I don't know. That's for you to decide. But uh, a big shout-out to those guys, Chad, AJ, Ian, Harry, Ethan. I'm forgetting a lot of people out there, but honestly, it's, it's a great partnership and one that makes it possible for us to do what we do. So 
Uh, without much further delay, let's go roll into it. Uh, this, again, this is going to be two parts. There's no rhyme or reason or order to any of it, but uh, I wanted to start this off with Bones, the Ryder Cup episode that we did with him, his story on Yarmo Sandlin and Phil Mickelson. Uh, and then we're going to go from there, just call them one by one. I'll, I'll pop in to kind of introduce the clip because so, you usually can't hear the question before it. But again, thanks to everyone for tuning in this year. Uh, let's do it again next year and enjoy this wrap-up from 2019. And if you ever have a friend that you think might be interested in this podcast, I encourage you to send them these couple of wrap-up episodes because this is kind of the greatest hits, the best of, and uh, we're pretty excited about sharing it with you. So thanks again for tuning in. Hope everyone has a great holiday. And here is Bones from episode 167. Wow. Uh, I, I figured we'd get to Yarmo at some point here. So. <laughs> I made it like 20 minutes. <laughs> so in 96, they used to have this tournament, the old Dunhill Cup, back in the uh, 80s and 90s. It was this phenomenal event that they have in the fall at St. Andrews where you'd get three players from from, from certain countries and you go over there and you'd play against other other teams, if you will, and, you know, whoever won two matches or what have you would advance. And it was this great kind of knockout competition. And early in Phil's career in 96, he made the team. We went over to St. Andrews with Stricker and Marco Mira and played these matches. And it was just, you know, it's it's one thing to be at St. Andrews. It's another thing to be there that time of year. It was kind of cold and fun. And, and the, the U.S. team was playing well. This was at a time when Stricker was a bit of an unknown quantity. And, you know, guys from other countries didn't know who he was. And he was just crushing people over there and it was so much fun it was this great week and and uh this guy Yarmo Sandelum was playing for Sweden and they were playing uh they were playing South Africa in I believe the quarterfinals and uh Phil and I were watching it from his hotel room we'd already won our match earlier that day and the U.S. had advanced and we were going to play the winner of uh whoever won these matches and Yarmo Sandlin was playing in a in a playoff. He, I think he had tied Nick Price, and uh, they were playing playing it off on the first hole at St Andrews there to see who would uh, who would win the match. And Yarmo made a putt and put his put the uh, the putter head up against his shoulder in kind of like a shooting motion. And and after he made this putt to beat Nick Price and shot at Nick Price, so to speak. <laughs> And we were just sitting there, just dumbfounded as to what we were watching. And and a lot of a lot of locals, a lot of people in Scotland were very offended by this because it was either weeks or months removed from a school shooting in Scotland um, that was just absolutely horrific and tragic, and a number of people, uh, kids, lost their lives. And it was it was a pretty tone deaf thing to do, to say the very least, not to mention the fact that he was doing it to Nick Price, who I think at the time was maybe the number one ranked player in the world. And if I'm not mistaken, also his caddy squeaky, who uh, who who passed away way too young, was was maybe in, in poor health at the time. So there was a lot going on with Nick. And and it was just stunning to see this happening. And 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 Phil said to me at the time, my gosh, if that guy ever did something like that to me, I, I don't know what I'd do. So, you know, as sure enough, you know, the, you know, the Swedish team advanced and, uh, and of course we get them, the U S gets them the next day and the pairings come out and it's Sandlin versus Mickelson. I'm like, Oh boy, here we go. And, uh, we went out there and played the match and, uh, uh, to Yarmo's credit, he was playing pretty well. The other, our other two guys, O'Meara and Stricker were going to win their matches. So the U S was going to advance, but on the, uh, 
12th or 13th hole there in San Andrews the next day. He, he made a five or six footer for par to go, you know, to increase his lead over Phil and did the same thing. He put his putter up to his shoulder and shot at Phil in this kind of shooting motion. And it was just like, you know, Phil wasn't having it. And, and Phil let him know on the next tee that he absolutely wasn't having it. And, uh, it was, a, it was in, in my years as a caddy, you know, one of the more tense situations that you get involved in out there. And it was like, uh, holy cow. And these guys were, were nose to nose at one point. And, uh, and, you know, Phil was not, you know, at that point, a major winner or a guy that had been around a long time, but he was a very accomplished player and, and, uh, Yarmo less so. So it was just, it seemed disrespectful. And so when you fast forward, sorry it's for taking so long, but you fast no, forward this so is long, story. so far to the 99 Ryder Cup, you know, all, you know, three years later, you know, Yarmo didn't get, he didn't play at all the first, uh, the first two days. There were two or three guys on that team, Cole Tart, uh, Yarmo, and uh, maybe Vandeveld that didn't play the first two days. And, uh, you know, our team is, is, is four points down. Um, we're, we're getting our butts kicked. It wasn't that our guys were playing poorly. It's just the, the, the European team was just amazing. And uh, th- for me, back then in 99, this is, this is pre-internet, pre-cell you know s- cell phones, all this stuff. And when we left the golf course on Saturday night, none of us had any idea what the pairings were. And I just remember going home and saying a small prayer, driving in my car back to the hotel, anybody but Sandalin. <laughs> And and sure enough, we got to the course the next day, you know, and, and there it was, you know, 12 guys on each team, this supposed random draw and Phil gets Yarmo in singles. I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh. So we get out there the next day and, you know, we hadn't seen the entire week, the guy the entire week because he hadn't played. And he comes striding to the tee and Phil's there and it's it's tense. And I remember NBC was doing the golf and they'd sent Mark Rolfing out there to cover this match because they knew there was a history between these two guys. And and one of the craziest things happened uh, on the second green. They they have the first hole. Went to the second hole was a really tough par three. Phil hit a six iron to about thirty feet, and then Yarmo hit this six iron that never left the flag. And we heard this you know kind of gasp, if you will, from the American fans behind the green. He literally almost hole it, almost made a hole in one. The ball went about two or three feet behind the hole, and we got up to the green. And I'm cleaning Phil's ball and I hand it back to him. Phil's going through the process of reading his putt and Yarmo is just standing there. He's done nothing with his golf ball. It's still three feet behind the hole. And it's definitely a putt that you want, you know, you're not going to give to him. It wasn't close enough. But what we didn't realize, and I came to find out later from Yarmo's caddy, is that Yarmo had something like a special coin that he always marked his ball with. And somehow he had a hole in his pocket. And between the first green and the second green, he'd lost this lucky coin or the coin that he used to mark his ball. And he had nothing else to mark his ball with. So he says to his caddy, give me a coin. The caddy's got nothing. So they're not going to ask me. They're not going to ask Phil. He's standing there behind this ball on the second green and he's got no coin to mark his ball with nothing and literally literally you hear this voice from the crowd some guy some spectator that kind of picked out what had been going on a guy goes hey yo yarmo you need a coin to mark your ball and yarmo turns around and goes as a matter of fact i do and all of a sudden coins come raining out of the crowd <laughs> and i swear to you chris we were there it was just this incredibly surreal moment where there were 20, 30, 40, 50 coins rolling across the green that spectators had thrown at him. 
<laughs> so we're out there picking up coins. Uh, you know, Yarmo finally picks one up, marks his ball, misses the three footer, and then topped oh it off the next tee. And Phil went on to, uh, to to win the match. He topped it. He did. He hit a fairway wood off the next tee and kind of cold topped it, hit in the heel and you know dribble it. You know, I don't know, a hundred yards down wherever it went, but. Uh, he was. Uh, it was just this crazy, crazy moment. Uh, he topped it off the tee. Phil won the hole and went on to win the match easily. Up next is episode 170 with Max Homa. Honestly, this was probably my favorite interview of the entire year. It was funny. It was. It, it was educational. It was kind of heartbreaking at times. Uh, we're gonna play three stories back to back. I'm not gonna interrupt any of them. Uh, one is just Max learning as an 11 year old and then deciding that he was dedicating himself to golf. Two is a story that he has from playing in the Bahamas and his caddy, Rudy. And the last one is the struggles he's been through and how that's going to be different this time around and what he's learned through those those struggles. So enjoy Max Homa, episode 170. But I do remember the first real, real golf tournament I played on a real golf course. Um, I think I was 11 or 12, and I played um, played with this kid named Philip Chien, who I'm actually still friends with. And uh, some other kid that w- they were both a, a year older, a couple years older, I think. And uh, they they kicked my ass like it was embarrassing. I think they both shot 70 and I shot like 85. And I was like, I remember it was like one of my first times playing like a like a big boy golf course. Like you had to, you, had, you know, I was like new to part fives at the time. So, um, <laughs> you know, and I, you know, didn't play well, but it wasn't shocking. I remember I asked him, I was like, how often do you guys practice? At the time I was playing flag football and basketball and all these other things They're like like we hit balls every day and I'm, and I remember I went into the car and like, I was like pretty upset. And you know, my mom's like, you know, how'd it go? And I said, Hey, like, I don't know, you know, if this is reasonable, but like, I need you to take me to the golf course every single day. And like, I remember that, that from that time on, I looked at it as a complete job. Like it's going to be fun. Of course, like anything in life can be, but I'm like, this isn't funny to me. It's not funny to play bad. It's not cool not to practice. It's not cool to go to the golf course and, you know, dick around like this is this is your job now. And it kind of built I've always been a very um, kind of self-motivated person. And and I think, you know, to your to your question about how do people do it? I think a lot of it comes from that. Um, you just find it in your in, in your own heart and, and, and mind to be like, okay, like I'm going to stick my, uh, uh, stick myself to this job and I'm going to treat it as such at a young age. And like, I'm going to have a single minded focus on, I'm going to play on the PJ tour. And it, it was incredibly delusional at the time. Like incredibly, <laughs> when I look back on it, I was nowhere near as good as these kids, but I really think that it's probably rare to get, um, you know, a 11 or 12 year old to work like that. And, um, you know, fortunately for me, I did. And I think that a lot of the people that are on the PJ tour and web.com tour, uh, have done that, you know, in their life. And my favorite caddy story, and we have a lot cause we go to South America and, you know, obviously we don't have enough money to just be flying down, you know, the who's who of caddies on the web.com <laughs> tour. Um, so we, uh, I go to the Bahamas this year. I didn't think I was going to get into the first event of the season because I was playing on a past champions category, which is like pretty low on the totem pole. Um, but I you obviously end up getting in and kind of week before kind of last minute I start uh, searching for caddies because I hear that Bahamas will not have local caddies. They gave us a full warning, like not on the on the web.com tour that this all like kind of went awry. So I land in my first flight. I think I landed in Florida and I was about to, you know, hop on over to the Bahamas. Um, Michael Scott's favorite, uh, the Sandals Resort. <laughs> uh, and um, 
I land and I get a text from this guy and he's like, Hey man, like, I'm sorry, I can't make it. And I'm like, no dude, like this is not an option. Like you have to come down here. He's like, it's just too expensive. And I said, I get it. Like it's expensive for me too. Like, let's go have a good week. Like I'll, I was paying him more money than I normally do. And it just like, he wouldn't come. So I go down, uh, you know, to the tournament, I'm like freaking out. Um, cause they really didn't have like a single local caddy. Like no one, I mean, it's, it's a resort. No one's there to like do anything, but like hang out. So I, uh, this woman, Vanessa, that was working for the tour that week, uh, I think was from there and she kind of got on the horn and started trying to find people. Um, it was actually hilarious. I, I had to, I tweeted out to people and I was like, literally going to fly somebody out to like <laughs> caddy for me. And I, I got all these sort of sponsors in it. Honestly, it was probably a mistake that I did that. Cause I just realized how like naive and stupid everybody is, but people were like asking me like, Hey, um, you know, the first question was always fine. Like, Hey, uh, will you pay for my airfare? I'm like a hundred percent. Like it's going to be incredibly expensive. But like at this point I needed an opportunity to play golf. Like I, I, you know, I'd pay any amount of money to like play in that tournament. Cause I needed to get myself onto the tour, like full time again. And, um, I was like, sure. And they're like, you know, what about room and board? I said, like, we can make a deal with room and board. It's pretty expensive. I said, I actually think I might have an extra spot. Uh, cause we rented like a little, uh, condo that week and they're like, okay. And then like, what about like, are you going to pay for my food and beverage? And I'm like, were you not going to eat this week? Like, <laughs> how is that now on me? And like, so I just got so fed up with everybody. And then like, you'd finally get a commitment and be like, oh man, I can't make it. Or, oh, I don't have a passport or, oh, this and that. And you're just like, oh my gosh, this is like so infuriating. And I didn't get to play a practice round because you have to have a caddy. So I walked the golf course by myself. Uh, and then Vanessa comes along with just, you know, my hero, Rudy. He's like, I got a guy named Rudy. He works at the airport. Um, no promises. Real. He was like, he was, might've been like named after Rudy. I don't know who's older, but like this guy just like came in. I could feel like the energy and the music, like heart of a champion. And so he comes on the range and he's got a hat that says Jesus on it. And I'm like, man, like this is going to be a great week. So I, first of all, teach him, try to teach him to put the bag on his back. That didn't go well. It took way longer than expected. Uh, second, we get to the first tee, and he has a smile on his face. He's the nicest guy in the world, but he goes, so how do you know which one of these goes the farthest? And I'm like, oh, no. Like, this is going to... And, and this Bahamas event is notorious for, like, unheard of winds and rain, and it's just, you know, that's usually when you really do need your caddy the most because you need an umbrella holder and, like, you know, somebody, like, keep everything dry, and now I have to, like, deal with, like, telling him to, like, stand right here. Don't move. Okay. Now you need to move here because like this guy's, you know, you're going to be in his through line. Um, he also had this, uh, I think I forgot to tell you guys this. He also had this watch that, uh, the alarm beeped every hour. <laughs> so I like almost in the back of my mind had to like recalculate what time it was. So like I knew how like much time I had before I had to tell him like run away. <laughs> um, so we did that. Uh, so we play the first hole goes fine. You know, I'm telling him where to go. It's a lot of people don't get it. It's a lot of like extra energy to like constantly know what you're going to do and like deal with somebody else. So, um, actually I just, I just basically explained motherhood. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I did it for like a few hours. That was really rude of me. I'm mansplaining over here. Uh, so I get to the second hole and it starts absolutely pissing and it's blowing like 40. And uh, I was like, Rudy, I said, please just stand over here. Like, don't worry about me. I put on my rain jacket. I gave him the umbrella. I said, you stay as dry as you can, but please just keep my clubs like as dry as you possibly can. And he's like, cool. So we just stood there and I, 
uh, I got him. Somebody sent me a video. I like walk out from under the umbrella and I'm just like getting like crushed, like just like getting absolutely slammed. I'm trying Daryl to putt. And yeah, it, I look like, I look like an idiot. Everyone else's caddies like standing over them with the umbrella, like the cool, like PJ tour looking thing. And my caddies like standing over there dry as a bone as I'm just getting like destroyed by the rain. Uh, so then, uh, play that hole, play the next hole and I'm walking to the green. And of course, like I had, you know, a towel that I was, you know, using to keep the grips dry not that you needed to like clean the golf ball because it was soaked, but to keep the grips dry. And I look at Rudy on about the third hole and he goes, Hey, no towel. <laughs> I'm like, what? He goes, I don't know where it is. And I'm like, Oh no. Like I almost, I wanted to cry. I was like, this is like my welcome back to golf. I've been playing, you know, the season before was easily the most embarrassing year of my life. Um, and now like I come out to this golf course that's really difficult water on every single shot. And I'm going to like be the guy that like can't hold on to a golf club. Like it's just, it, this is like the worst thing that could have happened. And like, I go around the rest of the day and you know, you're just trying so hard to just keep anything dry you can. And God bless me. You did a great job, but I got super, super lucky. The next day there was a massive uh, rain delay and we only played like seven holes maybe. So the next day we were going to have to finish that round and then go into, you know, the, the essentially like the, the final two rounds. And, uh, after that round, I, I grabbed a caddy who had his player had missed the cut. And I was like, Hey man, like, can you just caddy for me like the rest of the week? And I had to say goodbye to sweet Rudy, but, and now here's max on his struggles. Yeah, man, it was rough. Uh, a lot of people don't understand. It actually started in, uh, the web season the year before I had actually won, and then just, I don't really know what happened. It just went, like it went fast. Um, it was when it, mo- when it goes, what goes? My driver got yeah. like, I've never been like a premier driver of the golf ball, but I've been fine. I mean, my ball obviously stays in play. I do this no for Tron, a living. Yeah, I'm no, yeah, I'm no Tron. But I like, it stays in play. And all of a sudden I'm out there and it's like, I, I could tell you where every OB stake is in the world. Um, and it's just, it's frightening. If a golf course had white stakes, like I was like, oh, like nightmares. Is it hard to compete in professional golf when you're thinking like that? It would honestly, I didn't think it would be, but yeah, it was surprisingly difficult. Like I was like, wow, this should still be easy. I mean, okay. One off the tee. Okay. Two out of bounds. All right. So I'm hitting three off the tee. I'm giving you guys all two shots a hole. Um, yeah. So it became very difficult. Um, so, uh, just kind of lost it. And then, you know, me and, uh, I had changed coaches. So me and, uh, my, uh, new coach at the time tough for him. And we had just started getting going and all of a sudden, like, you know, we're like breaking things down as small as we can. And so I played terrible to end that season. Uh, and then came back out onto the PJ tour now. And I'm like, Holy cow. Like not that I was like that nervous, but I was like, Oh, this is a new opportunity. Maybe it's just like my mind was out of it and it just continued. I missed the first five cuts, started not getting into anything. The golf courses are considerably harder and more demanding. And, uh, all of a sudden I'm, and then I'm playing with people who are like, not not saying that the web guys aren't great, but like the so you play with a few PGA guys, you're like, holy cow, like you guys are the real deal. And I'm over here like, like, you know, okay, no, I didn't make eight there. I made seven and like, oh, sorry. Like it was really hard to keep track. I said, I totally get it. Like next time I'll like have a clicker out for you. So I was like quite embarrassing. Um, but, but I, I saw a little bit of success. Um, I think what I did that was, and like I, I, don't like to get serious about a lot of things, but what I was, I, I was so proud of myself that year and obviously going into this year, but that year, because I would leave Thursday, I'd shoot a bazillion and go to the range Friday. I'd shoot a bazillion, miss a cut, go to the range. And, uh, I had actually changed back to my, um, my coach I had in college and you know, who I'm with right now, Les Johnson. And we, 
you know, he was awesome. I I'd call him every day and be like, Hey, like this is what happened today. And we didn't have all bad days. I remember the John Deere and the Greenbrier actually led the field in, uh, in total driving for the first two days, not all four days. Cause I didn't get to play those two, but <laughs> the, all the first two days. And you know, that even was a mental struggle. Cause I'm like, gosh, if like the one thing I think I'm terrible at, I'm the best at this week. And I still missed a cut, but it was just becoming way too much, like too much pressure on myself to do everything great. Um, you know, also like completely just like giving up on practicing my wedges and my short game and putting, because it's like, if I can't get the ball and play, what's the point chipping for six, isn't really like that big of a deal. Um, so, uh, but I'd have weeks where it was just, you know, I would just be like, okay, I'm going to miss a cut, but I'm going to grind as hard as I can. And every single day, every single day, I'm going to learn one new thing about it and, and just be so freaking prepared for when it comes around. And I, I, I posted it on my Twitter after I think I got my card. Um, but I found this quote that Kobe, uh, had in his locker. I think he got from Popovich, but it was about this stone cutter. And it says, you know, like a stone cutter, uh, is chopping away at a, at a, at a big, um, boulder and he swings at it, you know, one time, two times, three times, a hundred times without like a dent being made in it. And on the hundred and first time it completely breaks apart. And it says a wise man knows it was not the hundred and first blow that did it. It was the hundred that came before it. And I was like, this is me right now. Like, this is how I'm going to like leave my mark on this game. And this is how I'm getting back. And I got, I got, I, I was fortunate to have a career in general, like that I've made a good amount of money where it wasn't like a massive financial, like it wasn't on my brain, like that. I was just like siphoning off money. Um, but you know, it obviously wasn't great, but I was able to be like, okay, like if this takes four years, it takes four years, but we're starting right now. And I'm not going to waste a day or an hour or a minute not trying to get better. And it actually taught me to get my attitude to be so much more positive. Cause I realized that if you're playing that bad and you're also thinking negatively, like they don't go together. So I had to lie to myself and just be like, today's the day, dude, like today's the day we go shoot 65 and everything kind of breaks apart. And like this starts to go the right direction. And every time I thought I hit rock bottom, um, I found a shovel and dug a little deeper and it was shocking. I would come off golf courses and just like in shambles, like mentally and just be like, man, like maybe I'm not supposed to do this. And then, you know, I'd be like, all right, wake up in the morning, going to practice. And I, I'm very, very proud of myself for doing that. Um, it was hard and it makes this year feel like I haven't felt what I felt, uh, when I got my car back in, in, in uh, Canterbury in Cleveland a couple weeks ago, cause I have an unbelievable group of friends that supported me and never, you know, like, you know, you lose, you, you lose a lot of people when you do this. Like I, I got a lot less text messages and you know, obviously when you're playing bad about hanging out, but my friends stuck by me and it was cool to get texts from certain people and then be like, man, like I know what you just did. And like, that was impressive. And I was like, for the first time I was like, I agree. Like this one was cool. Um, cause embarrassed, it's one thing to be bad at your job or, or to struggle. It's really hard to like legitimately be embarrassed to be out there. I'm playing against Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson and Rory McIlroy. And I'm like shooting 80 and I'm losing. F I thought I think one term I lost in two rounds, 14 shots to the field in total driving it's just like, what are you doing out here, dude? Like, and, and I know deep down I'm better than this, but you just think you get stuck in this rut and, you know, glad it obviously turned. Um, I just wanted to leave a mark of, um, resiliency, uh, you know, and I thought that that would be, that would be who I am. Some people are great at hitting a seven iron. Some people are great at putting. I'm going to be like the toughest guy you've ever met. And like, that's in my head, how I kind of tried to spin it. Up next is episode 149. This is with Ernie Els. We recorded this with him in Germany at the BMW International. First is a fun one. It is the first time I think that we've ever had confirmation on the legendary 
plain fighting story with him and Steve Marino, which he does confirm um, and talks about. And then on the serious side, on the back half of this, he talks about his foundation, Els for Autism, and what kind of an impact that has had on his son's life, which was some of the more meaningful stuff that was said all year long on the podcast. So enjoy Ernie Els from episode 149. Uh, we've heard we've heard stories a lot about the, the, about the plane, about the oh. traveling on the plane. I'm That's not like gonna... a hot topic right now <laughs> in yeah, the states. I, yeah. I, I, I hear that. I mean, I uh, we've had some interesting flights. Obviously, um, <laughs> they don't talk about your, the flights with your family too yeah, often. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to keep it clean. Yet. <laughs> no, you don't have to. You can do whatever you like. <laughs> no, the, the we've had some interesting flights. Obviously. Um, um, you know, invite my friends onto the plane, you know, uh, give them a, a, a ride where I can. Um, you know, it is on the aeroplane, very seldom on long flights that we drink uh, water. <laughs> <laughs> you know, definitely uh, enough beer on the plane. Um, a lot of the guys, my caddy used to, Ricky used to um, fly with me a lot. And he said that, you know, he thought that the plane could run on Heineken. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we had so much in there. So, uh, is it yeah, only Heineken? Steve, Steve Marino. That's that's Adam, the big. Adam, that's the big one. I that know. Keeps Adam around. Scott. Um, Scotty was is like a little brother to me. He flew with me a lot. Dustin Johnson. I mean, all the guys. Everybody flew with me. And but the Marino one is obviously the one everyone wants to talk about. And. Um, you know, we it, was just, it was just myself and Stevie from Japan all the way down to Palm Beach. And, um, I mean, we had a lot to drink. It was the end of the, end of the year, and it was a long way down to Florida. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, there was a lot to talk about. And, um, you know, we, we kind of hugged each other, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a love fest <laughs> in, the, in the airplane. But um, nobody got really... Uh, seriously injured or anything like that, and it was uh, it was all in good fun. I was gonna say, <laughs> I, I heard at the end of that that hands were shook at the end. I was like, all right, we'll see you later, pal. That's it. Exactly, like nothing happened. <laughs> it was just uh, I don't know. It's just what guys do, I guess. You know, there's a lot of testosterone running. We've heard that that uh, guys are required to surf the airplane. Yeah, we surfed a couple of landings. <laughs> okay. Who, who's know, the best surfer, Adam Scott? Yeah, Scotty was not bad. You know, he's a bit. A little bit light, but you know you gotta <laughs> have good footing coming in. It's uh, more like a longboard. But really, you gotta you gotta have a good pilot, and um, hopefully he doesn't have to put the emergency brakes on because he'd be through the front <laughs> <laughs> the front window. But uh, everybody surfed the landing. Everybody I can remember. Who were the best traveling companions on the flight? Like the best um, hangs? All of them. I mean, all the guys. I mean, we've had um, all the way from, as I say, Stevie. Um, I mean, I've had the whole tour. I mean, Camilo Villegas, um, Dustin, um, uh, Jamie Lovemark, um, Keegan Bradley, Justin Rose. Um, Can anyone not hang? Everybody. No, everybody <laughs> hung. Everybody. Um, it's, uh, Hendrik Stenson, uh, he doesn't have too many. You know, he, he was with me from Korea. Uh, Graham McDowell, we had a great time. Um, uh, Thomas Bjorn is another one that doesn't really have anything but uh, you know we forced them to have a good time Uh, (laughs) Rolling Stones with Blair uh, all the time Uh, start me up as we get in the airplane oh man Um, 
Yeah, no, we were like rock stars. You know, we, <laughs> <laughs> we really enjoyed it. I mean, I really got a lot out of the airplane, and my pilot stayed with me for 17 years. You know, um, Rob. So he's maybe the one to talk to. Also. Yeah, I'm yeah. not going to give you too well, much. Well, no, it's great. You gave you gave us enough. If you weren't going to give us the stories, we were going to go to the sources and okay. get the stories about it. And so you gave us enough that we won't go digging too much. Yeah. And I think I think most people would agree that your your foundation work, Els for Autism, is is one of the most recognizable names yeah. in the in the golf world. I guess when it comes to charity work, kind of can you tell us about the passion that is behind your your foundation and work? was there was there many foundations when you started it it seems like every golfer kind of has yeah. a foundation now which i know is a big drive of the tour but was there much of that when you started it or, or was it a pretty new idea well you know you got to give the pga tour credit i mean they they are a charity based organization i mean that drives them every tournament we go to there's charity dollars being given to, to local charities so you know you have a, a pretty good understanding of, of what the tour is all about um, I was lucky enough that I had things go my way and my parents uh, could send me overseas so my first thought uh, before my family came around was to help junior golfers uh, have the opportunity to be able to do what I did get out of South Africa um, and go and try and play overseas. I mean, that our exchange rate compared to the dollar and the pound is, is really weak. So you have to have a lot of capital to, to leave the country. So my first uh, deal that we did was a foundation uh, for junior golf. Guys were pretty good. We would help them through school um, and give them the opportunity to go overseas and play. And then the family came around, especially with Ben. And when Ben was born, he was autism. Um, you know, when we got our heads around it, myself and my wife started uh, Else for Autism. And, um, you know, we moved our base from London to the U.S. Because in London, there wasn't the care that um, my boy could get. It wasn't good enough. We were uh, very comfortable in Florida. And the U.S. people are just the most unbelievable people. We raised money and we've built this one-of-a-kind school for autism um, in Florida. And this, this kind of school is exactly what the people of autism needs right around the world. So hopefully governments, people will come and look at the school and build a hundred of these things. Because my boy has gone through the roof. He would l absolutely hate going to school. I had to drag him out of the house, in the car, out of the car, into the class, kicking, screaming. He cannot wait wow. to get his ass out of the house, <laughs> in the car, out of the car, at school. And now we've got to drag him out of school to, to go home. That's how it's flipped yeah. in our lives. That's so cool. And, that's, and that is where it's at. So um, it's really changed our world, changed our lives. And, um, you know, we need to keep going. Awesome. Up next are a few clips from episode 121 with Dustin Johnson. Dustin was the number one player in the world at the time of this interview. We interviewed him at the uh, his event, his junior event at TPC Myrtle Beach. And this is three separate clips. I'm going to string them all together, just talking about uh, not caring about what people say about him, about the ruling at the 2016 U.S. Open, and again, about what major championship heartbreak has hurt the most. 
Well, that brings up another thing. I mean, do you like? Do you read a lot of stuff about yourself? And and no, do you pay like attention to what Zero. people say about you? Zero. No. Has it always been that way, or have you like kind of just learned to brush it off? No, I just don't care. Yeah, <laughs> love that. That's that's fantastic. I mean, but but why? It's nothing. Right. Like for me, I mean, people are going to say. Obviously, a lot of people have very good things to say, but you know, there's always people that don't and. That's okay. Everyone's got their own opinion. But I just don't pay attention to it because it it really doesn't matter. I mean, you know, I got got my family and my friends and, you know, I care what they think. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. The penalty um, that I still don't believe I deserved. (laughs) Um, I don't think anyone really believes you deserved that. Were you pissed when that happened or were you – I mean, what is – Actually, I really wasn't because – the fact the the reason I wasn't is because I believed the whole time that I was never going to get a penalty because I'm like, I did not do anything right. to deserve a penalty. You know, if I would have made the ball move or if I would have done okay, I'd take my penalty and keep going. But even you know when there, I guess there was all the controversy, was I going to get a penalty? Was I not? You know. The whole time for me, I believed that I wasn't going to get one. So right. that's why it didn't And you can't me. control it either way. Right. Right. You can't control it either way. But at the end of the day, I was like, there's no way I'm getting a penalty. So I just kept going. So was there like a bit of an F you while you're playing that last hole? Like when you stuffed that. It, watching on no, TV, like we I were mean, all it pissed. Was, it was more, you know, so after, obviously after we're all done, we're in the, you know, in the. We go in the scorer's tent, then we go into another little side room or something. With, it's me and Westwood and Austin and Billy. And we're all in there with – I don't even know who the USGA officials were. But, you know, we're sitting there looking at the video and Westwood, Billy, me, AJ, everyone's like, okay. <laughs> like, what, do you what happened? Like, <laughs> what, where's the penalty? But, you know, we were in there for a little while, and, and finally I was just like, just give me the penalty. Let's go, because it doesn't matter. I won. So so they wanted to give you the penalty. They kept pushing oh, yeah, towards that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I was tired of matter. arguing, so I just wanted to get the trophy. So I'm like, I just gave up. <laughs> so what would have happened if, it was a, if you won by one? I would still be there <laughs> because, yeah, it wouldn't have. Was there ever an apology issued by anyone there or they, I mean, about the way it was handled no, or I mean, anything like that? Would, you know, no matter what, it's, it's, it's a tough situation for everyone. So yeah. it's, you know, it's fortunately it worked out where it didn't matter. You know, I think that that helped everyone. And, and, you know, because if it would have been a situation where, you know, it could have cost me the tournament. I think it would have. Yeah, we'd still be there arguing for yeah. sure. Which of your of your close calls would you say like hurt the most? Which one bothered you the most? Um, they don't bother you. No. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's golf. It's a game. You know. You you lose a lot more times than you win in this sport. I mean, it's just, well, it's just how it goes. Focus that energy on the. So I just try. I mean, for me, I, I try to take any positives I can out of any situation. Like I said, whether it's good or bad, and, and move on. Because at the end of the day, it, 
doesn't matter it's already over with so um you know you got to move on you can't change anything that's happened in the past you can only you know move forward up next is episode 161 with justin thomas he talks about the incident that happened with the fan at the honda classic this last year and what the blowback has been like in that experience um so here is jt yeah, it was, you know, and I, I made it very well known after the fact. I obviously wish I didn't do it. I was I overreacted, whatever it may be. But, um, yeah, it just a, the, the crowds at the Honda can get a little uh, a little rowdy, you know. It's um, a little it, frat bro, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah you know, doozy. it's exactly. So it's um, you can tell that the drinks were flowing very late in the afternoon. And, yeah, this guy had been kind of been – needling me a little bit and uh and still that that's gonna happen I, I need to get over that fact but uh finally it just was the fact that i just had had enough and i just after yeah. he said that i turned around and i was just like dude like you gotta go i just i really i'm trying to win a golf tournament here i don't really care um and i i handled it very poorly i said that um but i shouldn't have done it at all i mean in retrospect it's just one guy um and because of that one guy i've created a lot more people that don't like me as opposed to one guy so uh it is what it is i mean if that's the worst one of the worst things i do in my career i'll be just fine well the first question i had though is how often does something like that happen has that that ever happened at any other point i mean i I, the cameras picked it up is what really made it a big deal but Mm -hmm. i mean is that an a a totally unusual thing for a fan to get ejected or for you to ask to be a fan to be ejected or a, a fellow playing partner to request that from security of some way uh, well you know it it's just it's happened more lately it's um because at these tournaments you know guys just they do they they get drinking so much and it's just like they kind of feel invincible on the other side of the ropes and look i understand that the the needling and stuff like that's going to happen and we do understand that but it's just like when it when it's inappropriate or when guys are doing it like as we're over shots or they're just i mean when it gets ridiculous it's like there's just no spot no place for that you know it's i understand yeah we're athletes we're adults but it's it it is golf and um i think you know people so often are like well you know that's just typical golf being soft or whatever it is but it's like dude like those people different sport people in football basketball baseball those players can't hear them you know what i mean like you think tom brady can really hear all those people that are dog cussing him in the stands no it's like it's they're right there they're right next to us and it's like when you start saying stuff about personally or I mean I've heard I mean I remember it was so cool um at LA this year this guy was just non-stop on me on 17 and uh and he just was I mean being so inappropriate and just rude and finally I just kind of like turned around I'm like dude like that's that's good and uh and then he kind of and then he turned around of course act like he wasn't there and then he mm-hmm. and you know he didn't want to say it to my face and I just kind of you know I looked at him and I kept going and then he said it again and then Rory, I was playing with, he was just, he came down and he was like, get this guy out of here. He's wow. like, there's no, there's just no place for it. Um, the, I understand that there's different tournaments and different moments that, uh, that you can get rowdy and, you know, you can be loud, but it's just, uh, you know, like you said, it is golf and it's, it's, it's a shame that it's kind of gotten that way. And I, yeah, I do wish that, uh, that I had that moment over. All right, these next couple are going to be story time. And first up is from episode 123 with Luke Guthrie and Justin Huber. Uh, We kind of just laughed through what it was like for Justin to play in the America's Cup uh, with Matt Kuchar. And the story that goes along with that, how he got selected to the team, I know that the actual story with Kuchar is bleeped in this. We had to do that for multiple, multiple reasons. Just trust us that it was hilarious what is said under here and enjoy this story from Justin Huber. 
What uh, you brought us a nice artifact here from uh, from from what year? The America's Cup is this 2015? That is 2015, Mexico City. So we have a Justin Huber bag cover here with American flag, but signed by your partner Matt Kuchar, the Cooch baby. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about that experience, or how did you end up on this team? So it is uh, yeah a week or two weeks before the event. We're in Santiago, Chile. And the whole deal was Tiger and Kucher are going to come play. And we, I had a partner in Kent Bull. And we had, I mean, we'd already got the matching Footjoy shoes with American flags on it. We were going to be over the top. My wife was coming to Caddy. He had Aaron Fleener, um, big cat, the real big cat. And uh, he, we were gonna, just going to have fun. We had USA visors, like the whole deal, just way over the top, going to go have fun. And then what, what is the America's Cup? Yeah. You start with that. So yeah, it is a. Um, <laughs> I don't even know. Like I don't. I don't know how it no works. Offense. No, no, no thanks to anyone. Um, <laughs> these three Argentinian guys pony up all this cash to host this event, and their goal is to get Tiger there. And um, so, and Bridgestone was the sponsor. So then I think that's how they got Cooch. Um, just a two-man team event, best ball for four days, and. The way it worked on Latin America, they got three teams if you were all inside the top 20 on the money list. The U.S. did. And then each country, the top player, if you were in the top 60, got a team, whatever. Um, pretty cool little deal. And then you were going to get to tee it up against Kuchar and Tiger. Well, it's in Mexico City? Yeah, Mexico City. The course was actually – it was the tightest golf course I've ever played. Like these trees that were a yard off the fairway that touched the ground. Like if you hit it off the fairway, it was darn near chip out. Sick. And uh, <laughs> it was it was a blast. And anyways, yeah, I'm gonna play with Kent. They come up to us two weeks before the tournament and said uh, Tiger's withdrawn because of his back, and we're trying to get Fred Couples to come. And I was like, all right, that'd still be kind of fun to play against those guys. And I don't think he wanted to. And ended up they're like, all right, well, it's gonna be the low American on the money list. Who else can we find? Yeah, yeah. Bridgestone, <laughs> some of them might pull out. So naturally, Huber was yeah. the next one after. <laughs> next in line. Um, and they're like, yeah, low American on the money list gets to play with Kucher. And they sent me an email to ask me if that was okay. And I'm like, yes. yes. <laughs> like, I don't know how to respond to this. I think I'm busy. Um, so anyways, it's like, yeah, you get to play with Kucher and show up on the Monday, I guess. And go play my practice round by myself. Can Kuchar. we talk about, can we talk about the replies to the tweet first? Yeah, What's the, announce, the announcement so, that yeah. came up? So, so tweet. yeah. So Jason Sobel. Said uh, PGA Tour announces that Matt Kuchar's partner in upcoming Bridgestone America's Golf Club, replacing Tiger Woods, will be Justin Huber. <laughs> uh, there's what, who, aren't they one and the same? Who, and the and the TV execs are salivating at that. Uh, you're either too late or too early for April Fools. Of course, I have no idea what the America's Cup is either. Hey, those are both top one, top seven fifty players right there. <laughs> So win-win for Cooch either way. Nick Johnson, no exaggeration here. I've literally never heard of him. <laughs> Who is Justin Huber? This is my favorite one. Justin Huber? <laughs> Didn't know there was a 734th ranked golfer until now. It's a big confidence boost, really. They, I mean, just... they would have been better off replacing Tiger with his surgeon. <laughs> this is a joke, right? Good thinking. Throw another big name in there. Sounds like a snoozer. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. Sat in the public's parking lot crying while reading those with my wife. 
<laughs> so you did see all these replies? Oh, yeah. My buddies were like firing these, like screenshotting them over to me, and I'm just like, oh my gosh. It was, yeah, I got 16 retweets, 23 likes, and 24 replies. So <laughs> the ratio is not ratio. Yeah, It's not a great ratio. But I remember I asked you last year, I asked you what, what the best round of golf you've ever witnessed was. And hands down, hands down, final round. We're playing best ball, and I kid you not, we didn't use a single one of my shots. <laughs> we shot 60. We shot a single one of my holes. Like, we tied on a few holes, but he, he was – I went did the math the other day. He birdied one. He lipped out for eagle on two and made birdie. So he's two under, parred three, stuffed it on four, par three, made birdie. I make birdie on four but he rolls in like a 50-footer for eagle on top of me. So he's five under through five. He birdies. Freed him up. Yeah, 100% freed him up. And then uh, I think he birdies six and seven, and then pars eight. He had a good look, but he missed it. And then he hits it to like four feet on nine, and then makes another 15-footer on ten, and he's nine under through ten. And I'm like, all right, six-shot lead. Let's go, guys. <laughs> go Let's team. Go team. <laughs> And then the next hole, we get to 11, and he hooks it left in the trees. And I'm like, I looked at my wife, and I honestly was like, this is my chance. Like, I'm going to prove myself to Cooch here. And I hit it this down the fairway. This is after four days of playing, or yeah, three and a half like, days of playing with it. I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to do. And uh, Steinberg's out there, just walking around, just like Cooch is making putts. He's just shaking his head, just like smiling the whole time. And he's walking like inside the ropes or whatever, just being the man. And anyways, we get to 11, fairway, hit it on the green, and Cooch like, Hits it way right of the green, chips up to, I don't know, eight, ten feet. And I hit my first putt like three feet by, but I had to wait for the other group to play. We're playing with Fabrizio Zanotti, who's been like kind of decent on the European yeah. tour recently, um, and his partner from Paraguay. And anyways, Cooch then rolls in the 10-footer for par, and I just scoop up my coin. I'm like, oh, well, never mind. And then the best part is we get to 18. Now we got like a five, like legit five or six-shot lead. And I hit it on the green to probably 15 feet, and he's about the same. And I was like, "Do you want me to like I'll putt first?" Like, he's Please. like, "He's like, no, I got it, <laughs> cash." <laughs> I just scoop up my quarter with my putter and go shake hands. And I'm like, "Oh, that's the easiest 30 grand I've ever made." <laughs> <laughs> what was his vibe like, like coming into the week? I mean, was he pumped up to be there? Was he just going through the motions? I honestly thought he was going through the motions. Um, I assume he was getting paid. He was the nicest guy in the world. Like he, him and Steinberg took my wife and I to dinner two nights, and I mean we had police escort through downtown Mexico City. Um, sat there and talked to him for a few hours. Steinberg had to catch a flight back to see his daughter's volleyball um, game the next day, so he's taking the red eye. So he had to leave dinner early, and Cooch just sat there and talked to Sarah and I for another hour, hour and a half probably, and. Uh, Anyways, he I thought he was just kind of going through the motions. We're out there, first day, he's just kind of plodding along. He's, he's aiming down the left trying to hit those fades, but you're at such high elevation they're not cutting. He's just hitting in the left trees every day or every hole. And um, he didn't play well the first day. And then the second day was better, third day was better, and obviously the fourth round. But he's, we had dinner before the last round. He's like, I didn't come down here just to play. I came here to get my name on the trophy. And I was like, all right, man, like, cool. Like, <laughs> I'm in on that. Let's like, do that. Let's do that. And then he goes out and shoots 60 the next day. He made a bogey. Um, that should, the other time I could have helped him. He was right in the middle of the fairway, and then he missed the green with a wedge, and I was over chopping in the trees. <laughs> like, just 
trying to get done as fast as I could. <laughs> um, anyways, I hit it out to like six feet and I got out of the bunker and I had that left for par and he did chipped it by and missed it. So I was like, dang, I got to make this for par. And obviously I missed. So we, we shot 60 with a bogey. And I'll take my bogey. So I did help. Out. <laughs> I had one yeah. score count. Yeah. Uh, that's a bogey. Can you attest that he's not like, oh poop, oh shucks, <laughs> like oh crap? This this moment was what made me enjoy him even more because I we're playing this the third round on number fifteen, and uh, he cashes another fifteen twenty footer and. There's several hundred people around. They all go, cooch, whatever. And he's walking to the hole, and he's got this smile on his face. And he mouths these words. And I have no idea what it is, but I'm, I'm watching him. And we're walking off the, tee, or off the green back to the next tee. And I'm like, hey, what what'd you say there when you made that putt? And he, he looks at me, and he's been saying, oh, fart. Oh, dang it, Maddie. <laughs> the whole time. Like, whatever. And uh, we're walking back there, and I... So what what'd you say after that putt went in? He goes, <laughs> and I was like, excuse me? Like, oh, it's just something just so I say nonchalant. And I was like, up. what? And I was like, well, how'd you come up with that? And he's like, it's kind of a, a go-to for me when I, I kind of need like a little kick in the pants, like to get me going. He's like, the cameras don't pick it up. Like I'm smiling. I was like, what? Like, what? And up next is from episode 164. We've recorded this at the BMW Championship with Mark Leishman and his caddy, Maddie Kelly, about their first big paycheck on the PGA Tour and how they celebrated it. This is the hardest I laughed on the podcast all year long. <laughs> I remember um, our first tournament on the on the tour was at Sony. Oh and uh, <laughs> I remember we finished, I think it was 12th, um, and we were both, as you should be, but we were both so excited and we went down the beach and just... We were drunk. <laughs> we were drunk. Well, he made like 100 grand. We were so yeah. rich, both of us. It was 90-something it was, it was thousand dollars. So it was a he lot of money. paid off one of those credit cards, <laughs> yeah. right? And it was the funniest thing because Maddie's like, have you ever seen anyone do this? And, I'm, and he told me what it was. And I'm like, nah. He goes, I'm going to do it. So he goes into the um, goes into a 7-Eleven or a ABC store, ABC yeah. store, goes in and buys half a gallon of milk, downs the whole thing... <laughs> And then, power and then shoves his and fingers then down his throat and power spews. It goes like, it goes, it would have hit that wall. It goes like five yards. And we're just, this is on like Waikiki Beach. Yeah, it, it, it was yeah. dark. It was dark, but I'm on the ground just like, I've completely lost it. I'm just crying, laughing. And he, he's still spewing over in the corner. And, and Never that heard was, of that. That's the, I remember the check and I remember that about yeah. that week. Yeah, that, oh but it was God. just like one of those things. We were so excited. <laughs> yeah, that was our first week on tour. It was all downhill from One there. thing I'll never, ever forget. Up next is episode 139 with John Rahm talking a bit about his upbringing and coming over to the States without being able to speak English and how he learned English. And what was your English like at that time? Non-existent, really? Non-existent. I mean, I... Was, was that intimidating, going to a country where you didn't speak the language? I was oblivious, to be honest. Really? I was completely oblivious. Uh... It's meaning you thought that you could get by with Spanish when you when you no, arrived. No, I, th- I thought my English was gonna be good enough. Okay, so I never picked up on, let's say the English, the the American accent, because what we learned was British or UK English. So there was a lot of a lot of words that were different, a lot of idioms, just a lot of phrases that were very different to what I was used to, and just the pronunciation of words was very different to what I was used to. So you know, it it took a while to be able to 
to communicate properly. I always, now after the fact, it took me about two or three months to be able to carry on a conversation properly. I did not understand a single joke for a better part of two years, and it wasn't up until my junior year where I could actually make jokes. Okay. Because my the Spanish humor was different mm -hmm. to the American humor, and being able to say what I meant in a way that made sense in the states was very difficult as well. So it took it took a while for me to be able to actually be funny. Was it, how many years of English did you take growing up in school? Were you, like, did you take it for a long period of time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the the, the English system in it's very in, different in most uh, Spanish schools is horrible. Basically, every year, the first day of school, present simple. No matter if you're 10 or 18, literally every year is the same thing. Yeah. So you're not really going to learn. So I did extra uh, I did extra classes of English uh, in outside schools that were independent, and that's kind of how I got a little better. But I thought it was okay. Like I could communicate in the, communicate in the UK. It was just coming to the States where mm -hmm. it was a little different. It was, it was a little harder to, to get used to, a, lot of, a much faster pace when it comes to speaking English, a little harder to understand the pronunciation was a little different for me so it took yeah. a while i mean let me tell you when i got to my first class macroeconomic principles and there was 365 people in class and it looked like a movie theater for me i cannot believe it <laughs> the teacher is speaking with a microphone i did not understand a single word i think i i changed like half of my classes my first semester really? just to be able to go to smaller classes where i could actually understand what people were saying to me wow up next is episode 138 with Tommy Fleetwood. I forgot to press a button on this one, and it accidentally recorded from my computer, and not the microphones, but please ignore that. Hear the story of uh, his relationship with his coach, Alan Thompson, um, the driving yips that he went through, and how he powered through to be one of the best players in the world. When I first got into an England sort of squad, so that was, I reckon it must have been like 12, say, you got onto this like regional stuff, and he was the coach for. Sorry, what was his name? Alan thinking, Thompson. That's right. Okay. So like northwest of England, he was the regional coach. So um, he was the coach then. My first lesson off him, off him was then, um, and then we've had like three three stints since then. I think I went on my own for a bit when I got to like seventeen, and I thought I knew better. Um, then got him back. Then um, yeah, then I started working with him about. Three three months before I turned pro, and uh, I got to world number one amateur with him, and then uh, won on tour with him, and then decided I was going to do my own thing again. <laughs> <laughs> the way he told the story, though, was he, he kind of nudged you in that direction, even that he thought. It... Yeah, well, I, th I think um, at the time it was uh, relationships difficult. I'm like in tour life, they just are, and um, I think I was kind of. I was, we were pushing something that I wasn't quite getting enough out of and then we just nudged away from it a little bit. Like expectations were getting high and what we were working on. It's funny how things just work out like that. It happens all the time. You just can't quite seem to get out what you're trying to do. Fast forward like three years later and I, you know, we do everything that we, we were doing before but more and I get better. But it just at the time, and just timing happens sometimes. And as long as... Um, I think that's when it's really important just to leave on good terms and keep good relationships with people because you always, that's one massive thing I've learned is that you, you're probably going to end up working with these guys again so you have to do it in the right way when you do split from people and it, you know, for us it worked out. But yeah, we, he kind of, he has a lot of pride in his job and I think if it's not going how he wants it to, he likes to just, uh, you know, he, he speaks his, he, he doesn't let you know, he speaks his mind and he just wants what's best for you. And that last time you went back to him, I mean, it was pretty... It was pretty immediate, right? Like you saw the results. Yeah, it, it, it can't, yeah. I mean, I so I 
sent him, I actually sent my dad a text first to ask him what to do because I was in China and like there's not been like much said about it but I had a, a yip at the time with like my driver um, and I couldn't keep it on the golf course at all and I was playing this practice round and I thought this is like, what, what am I doing here, this is just ridiculous, I'm in the middle of China with nobody here, can't hit me out, I've got no chance of making the cut, what's the point? And uh, anyway, I sent Tomo a couple of videos because my dad said, just, he said, just text Tomo because Tomo, Tomo knows you swing better than anybody, just text him. So I sent him a couple of videos. I asked him first if it'd, it'd be all right looking and I was kind of, you know, half thinking he might say no here. <laughs> um, but he, he was made up to have a look and he had a look. So that would, that would have been like April time, say. And then um, we sort of started working and then Wentworth 2016, so that was May was like my lowest point ever where I was playing the practice rounds. I played a pro-am and we play this thing, par is your friend now. So if you can't make a birdie, you just pick up. And I think that day I hit 12 tee shots and just walked the rest of the course with my, with my playing <laughs> partners. I, could, I, I, I mean, it was just awful. And, um, and I walked off that pro-am and I thought, oh my God. I, was, I, was, I went, you know what? I, and Finno actually came to watch. So Finno wasn't caddying at the time. He comes to watch because he's one of my mates. And, um, same Thursday morning, he was like, "How's it going?" And I said, um, "I was teeing off in the afternoon." And I said, uh, "I don't think I'm going to play. I, was going, I, I can't get it off the first tee. I don't like the first tee shot there anyway." And I said, "Finna, honestly, like honestly, I don't think I can make it off the first tee." And um, and he was like, "What's wrong with you?" And I, I went, "Listen, I, I can't hit the ball. I'm horrendous anyway. I play first tee shot." I, step up and I teed this driver about a millimetre off the deck and I hit it 40 yards into the trees right and I was really happy because I didn't top it. As, as, long as, I, as long as I got it off the tee and I found it, I was going to be happy. Played horrific and I actually shot like level power or something, which is unbelievable. But Finno said it was the worst I'd ever seen me play. So that was the lowest and we'd been working together for like a month at the time. And um, sort of from that point, everything had to move forward because it couldn't go any worse so it had to move forward um so yeah and then once once we sort of got a little bit of momentum um things started to get a little bit better but it's always difficult your game can come back but when your head's like you've lost so much confidence we're gonna wrap part one with a clip from episode 178 i tried not to lean too heavily on the more recent episodes that you guys would have heard in more recent months but for these two guys, we're going to make an exception because we had Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson on the podcast. I think it kind of goes without saying that uh, how much of a thrill it was to, to get these guys on, to be able to talk a little bit of golf. Obviously, a lot of the conversation around it was uh, related to the match, but we really appreciated that we got this opportunity and uh, thought we got some good stuff out of it. So we're actually going to play those two interviews in their entirety to take us to the end of part one. Stay tuned for part two of the podcast, The Clip Show, which will be out later this week with a whole new myriad of guests. Curtis Strange, Jessica Corda, Lydia Ko, Maverick McNeely, Paul Azinger, Mark Brody, just a lot more to come in part two. So don't be sure to catch that and uh, enjoy us playing you out with Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. On the tee from USA, Tiger Woods. All right, Tiger, you've done exhibitions in the past, but never anything like this. Why did you want to do this? Well, I wanted to be a part of the game in a, in a different way. You know, I've done um, matches under the lights before in the past, and uh, this is something that's different. This is something that was, is unique and is interesting. 
Yeah, there's a, a huge um, economic um, uh, importance to the to this event, um, but I understand that this is also doing something that's never been done before, and you know, and trying to make something like this successful is a unique challenge, and I found intriguing and I'm very interested in it. We've heard stories of Phil's gamesmanship. Is he, <laughs> is he actually good at it, or is he just good at telling everybody how good he is at gamesmanship? He's both. Okay. He's definitely both. You what's, know, a, Phil, what's a good example of a well, jab? Phil is is one that is very more outwardly towards his jab with his jabs, and he tries to uh, subtly, not always say subtly, also subtly, uh, try and get in your head with either wagers or it's um, just one-liners and just uh, things. And on top of that, once he gets up, he's one of the worst front runners there is. How so? Because he'll just nonstop chap. Yeah. You know, he'll just uh, he'll chirp nonstop and then when he's down, it's a little different deal. You are know? you the same though when you're up on him? Are you jabbing at him like that? No, nah, I'm, I'm more of, you know, more subtle than that. Yeah. You know, and I've always been that way. Uh, more so on, on the because of the nature of our, of our tour, uh, that's one of the unique things about this uh, pay-per-view event is that we're having uh, mics on there live nonstop. Well, I was describing to one of the interviews earlier is that um, yeah, it's just going to be very different from what you normally face. I said, in essence, not really. Uh, because when I get to the golf course, I'm, I have a camera on me. When I get to the putting green or sure. range, I have a camera on me. I've had people try to sneak, sneak in you know, camera phones and try and catch live or audio remarks in you know, shag bags that we give on a, with golf balls. You know, I've had it all. Mm-hmm. And so this is not the, too different from what I have to face you know, week in and week out. Yes, it's a live mic and entire time but you know we have boom mics that are trying to get us the entire time we have camera phones that people are on t-boxes that are, are open and trying to record you know what we're saying or even post different things from if i'm having a conversation with my caddy or with another player uh, you'll have gallery members that are you know have their camera phones out trying to record all this sure. so this is not too uncommon too new to me you mentioned having cameras on you from the time you arrive. I felt like this year you kept upping your game in your arrival attire. You, you started going cutoff sleeves. You had backwards hats, sunglasses. <laughs> was that a conscious thing? No, it wasn't. No, I, I'll be <laughs> the, honest you with you. You knew the internet I, was going to go wild I had, for that. I had done that so many times throughout the years. Um, but the only difference is that this year there's been a lot more interest in, I think, the, of you know, my round that particular day. And, you know, sometimes they, they would cut me, they would catch me with, you know, cut off sleeves because I just came from the workout trailer, which is in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And so I'd walk from the parking lot and didn't want to get my clothes, um, you know, all sweaty because I'm, I'm going to take a shower in a clubhouse. And so, yeah, they, they get me in, uh, you know, those situations. Um, but that's not too uncommon for a lot of the tour pros, mm-hmm. a lot of tour pros. And I just, again, happen to have cameras on me all the time once <laughs> yeah. I arrived at the golf course. So... Something that is unique and what I would say, un, well, not so unique, but it's uncommon for me. Um, is was normality that for me showing up at a golf course and doing these different things has now been captured. You're in Phil's relationship. It seems like it has <clears throat> evolved over the years, and you guys have been kind of quick to downplay some of the previous mm. parts of your relationship. But I want to know, take me back to like the early to mid 2000s. What's that relationship like? Do you guys text each other? Do you talk on the range? And how is that different than it is today? No, we we definitely didn't didn't text one another back in those days. Uh-huh. Uh, we were competing against one another. I was one, and and he was two in the world for so many weeks. 
and we were trying to outdo one another. And it's very similar to what Jack and Arnold went through early part of their career. You know, they didn't really acknowledge one another, you know, like they did later in their career. And certainly post, you know, post playing at, at an elite level, um, they became a lot closer. And that's what has transitioned with us is that we become, we've, we've understood that, that we are certainly more alike than we would like to admit. <laughs> uh, and we both care and passionate ab- about a lot of the same things. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why you know, Phil's donating you know, his charitable efforts to the military. I was born and raised around the military. My father served. And you know, so these are things that, you know, I wasn't really privy to uh, early on in my relationship with him, but I've become very close to with him in a lot of these aspects. If you could swap out one part of your game for one part of Phil's game, oh, his, what would it definitely be? Definitely a short game. Yeah, that's easy. Right? It's, it's sick. You know, it's uh, what he can do around the greens is just uh, just amazing. I, I got a chance early in my career. Um, I was working with Butch, and Seve was working with Butch at the same time that we'd coincide a lot of my training camps around Seve. And so I got a chance to get to know Seve at a, at a pretty good level around, you know, short game-wise, and watch him hit a lot of shots and have him explain a lot of the things, how he did it. In, you know, what he did was phenomenal, but I think what Phil does is even better because yeah. Seve, had, Seve had a 56-degree sandwich, and he had to make it work. The, you know, the, the pins weren't as tight then, but the greens were a little bit slower. But with the pins are being so tight and Phil going to like a 60 or 64 degrees of loft, he's able to hit shots that no one could hit. But then again, he's trying to pull off shots that, that no one's ever tried to pull off, and he does. You know, that's what made Seve so amazing is that he hit shots that we only maybe even thought about entertaining for you know a millisecond, but he'd pull it off. Well, Phil's doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. What seems like high risk to a lot of us is not high risk to him because he's that good. If you had to pick a partner for a $9 million match, who's the first phone call? What's the first phone call you're making? Well, that's easy. It's Phil. Yeah? Yeah, no doubt. Uh, the way, because of his gambling? Because of, yeah. of what, what he does all the time and uh, the amount of side wagers that he always plays with. And he's very good at, at playing in these types of um, these type of games. He does it every Tuesday. You know, you look at him at major championships or it's um, weekend, sorry, no, normal events. Uh, his Tuesday games are legendary. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, you know, pick a partner, come get us, and therefore, you know, pretty large amounts and it's cash on on site, so it's pretty good. All right, we've got a few a list of questions in a folder we marked. If we ever get to interview Tiger, we'll do mm-hmm. a few rapid fires. You did an interview with Bill McAtee in 2015 at the Masters that no one followed up on. Did you really pop a bone in your wrist out of place at the 2015 Masters and put it back in? Mm-hmm, I what did. was the follow-up like for that? Was there? I mean, was it all swollen after that? Yeah, it was. Or, yeah. It was swollen, and I didn't play for another couple of weeks. Um, it was ice and stem wow. uh, for a couple of weeks uh, before I tried to even get to the point where I tried to strengthen it again. But I had to get the swelling out. Mm-hmm. What's the most nervous you've ever been over one golf shot? Oh, it's very simple. It was the 92... Uh, Nissan LA Open. It was my first tee shot ever in a PGA Tour event. I was an amateur, I was 16. And I'll never forget, it was, eh, this is no, no big deal, right? It's just a three-wood down the fairway, mm-hmm. just like any other three-wood. But I practiced things were fine. I got the ball, teed up, teed, up, teed up fine, built a stance, took it back. And all of a sudden, it felt like the club weighed 15 pounds. <laughs> I didn't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. 
I'd never felt like, I, evidently, I didn't have the nerves until, well, nervousness until I got into a position where I'm starting to make a, a golf swing to hit this golf ball. So once I get past the takeaway, it's when usually when I start thinking about trying to make a golf swing. And then all of a sudden, boom, this 15-pound object shows up in my hand. And I, I'll never forget just hitting right down the middle of fairway, but I don't remember what impact felt like. Right. You blacked out. On I was head. like, wow, I can't believe I should pull that off. And I had never felt a feeling like that ever since. Has anything in the more competitive part of your career, has anything no, ever No, nothing has that? ever nothing. felt like that. I've had some pressure, I, know, I think some, some pressure putts that I've made, mm -hmm. but nothing's ever felt like that. If you could have one mulligan for any one shot in your career, what would it be? Oh gosh, there's wouldn't be just one. <laughs> there's there's so many. Uh, I think if I if I look back on the the round I played at the uh, at Quad Cities in '96 when I lost to the you know the Gripper, that was a moment where I had I'd forgotten all of, of my training and I'd forgotten how I won won events and I got you know. Uh, I took myself out of a rhythm and how I played events and just because it was a tour event. And I learned from that lesson and I won a few weeks later at, at, at Vegas for my first event on tour. But that was a, a, a big learning moment for me. What's your biggest fashion regret in your career? I, none. Because no I, fashion regret? No, because at the time I made it look good. <laughs> <laughs> it was the MC Hammer pants. It was the big baggy shirt, but we all wore them. I know. You know, we... At the time, if you remember, um, Ashworth had the shirts, the double thick cotton that went past our oh, elbows, man. but we all wore them because, you know, Freddie wore them. Yeah. You know, he, he made it look cool. That's why we picked up our sleeves and tried to make it fit and tried to hold it up on our neck. Um, but that was a, a time in which we all wore baggy stuff. And now everything's going to more tighter, streamlined fit. Very last one. What is a skill of yours that you think is somehow unappreciated or underrated that maybe people don't, people don't give you enough credit for? <laughs> Asking you to brag uh, on yourself, but I was always curious to hear that one. I, 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 I'm probably underestimated my level of enjoyment for comics. Yeah? Comics. Yeah, I, I grew up trying to... Um, save you know my, my my savings from you know gambling at the golf course or my paper routes or you know all those different things to buy comics yeah, was okay. back when you had hard you know hard, hard hardback comics and so that was a time in which yeah i i've always fell in love with you know marvel and dc universes and uh everyone around me knows that how much i, I love it my mom loves it uh she actually keeps me more up to date than i am and so that's been, been fun over the years and Cool. Appreciate the time. You got it. Absolutely. Thanks for having Friday. me. Of course. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks. Hi, brother. On the tee from USA, Phil Mickelson. Phil, like I said, I've hoped to speak with you for a long time. This isn't, you know, how I pictured my first time in the, in the men's bathroom at uh, Shadow Creek. Thank you very much for doing that. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, we always start with kind of the, the, the most pressing question, which for you, I got to believe, is the leather jacket on Faraday. Was that you know? Was that a, uh, a conscious choice? Was that a performance art piece of, of some sort? What was what was the thought process? Was there? that uh, the most pressing question? That, that was yeah. So I have multiple uh, leather jackets um, that I wear out mostly with jeans and a t-shirt. That's yeah. kind of my outfit that I feel uh, most comfortable in. So I have probably f five to eight that I rotate and, and wear. I love it. Um, so you guys are mic'd up this week. 
does that mean are you are you going through and kind of writing one-liners? You looked extremely comfortable in the press conference. Are you, what's what's that? Does it all come natural to you? You, you seem very well positioned for this. On Tuesday, on Tuesday, uh, we're going to be more affable than we are on yeah. Friday. When we, you know, the intensity and the pressure when you start playing for the, those kind of numbers, uh, especially in a match play head-to-head format, it, it gets to be much more intense. But the uh, smack talk has been a gift that Tigers always had that I've feel like I've been okay at. And when we're mic'd, I think you're going to. Kind of see some of the banter that goes on uh, between us. You'll certainly get the in-depth analysis that a player in a caddy experiences. So, I think that uh, this event is going to showcase a side to the competition that most people, most viewers, don't get to see. But one of it is going to be that banter, smack talk. You talk about Tiger being very skilled in that regard. I don't know if you know people don't always get to see that from him. What is what's he like behind the scenes? Paint a picture well, for the, us. the reason they don't get to see that is he's he's got microphones in his face all the time. So when he does say something, he, he kind of uh, says it under his breath where you can't see his lips move so that you can't identify that it's him, but he always makes these little subtle passive-aggressive passive jabs, and they're funny. I mean, he's great <laughs> at it. I think that that side of him is going to come out in this event, and I think that's a good thing because yeah. uh, it's a bit of a risk anytime you put stuff out there that uh, is more intimate like that, that, that uh, you don't always let people in, but I think that side of him is really funny and a, a real plus if, if people have a chance to see it. So to the casual fan, you know, one of the things that kind of jumps out about the match is obviously the money. You guys are, are the two highest earners in, in you know, professional golf history. What is, can you put in perspective, you know, what does $9 million mean to you guys? Is, so, that, a, is that a fair question? Does that make sense? I, I get what you're saying, but keep in mind that it's an entire purse of, of the PGA Tour. It's four times, uh, four or five times what... Uh, we ever play for yeah. uh, for first place check, so it'd be the largest uh, first place check ever. And no matter how much money you make, it's enough to make you nervous and uncomfortable. So we we definitely want to uh, to win. But what it's uh, also doing though is showcasing the future of what watching sports is going to be like. Because with only two guys, we're able to do things you can't do another telecast by limiting the number of people that are watching we're able to have a technical side of production that you can't normally have we're going to have guys a guy with a camera walking around us getting views and, and angles that you never get to see drones that are in uh, up close and personal seeing the shots the swings and so forth as well as having on screen the actual odds of the uh, odds to win the hole, to win the match, to hit certain shots closest to the pin, the side challenges that we're going to have as well as being mic'd. It's uh, more than just uh, the nine million. It's kind of a glimpse into the future of where sports watching is going. So do you, when you, you know, off weeks and everything, do you watch a lot of golf on TV? And, and you I, know, have you taken I, uh, any positives, you, frustrations, anything, and put it into this? I usually watch during the season because it helps motivate yeah. me to, to practice. So I'll uh, watch a little bit while I'm practicing on the weekends. Uh, I don't watch too much in November, or December because there aren't really tournaments going on. But this is it had a match like this uh, been out there when I was growing up or, or watching uh, as a kid, I would have definitely been uh, a, a part of it and excited to see. Just like I was with the Skins game when that right. was out, I, I still crave to to watch golf. But uh, th- there aren't events uh, that, that excite me at this time. So there's so much stroke play golf throughout the year. There's so much PJ Tour golf. European tour. I mean, there's there's so much golf that looks very similar. This obviously looks incredibly different. Uh, I'm I'm curious in that regard. You know, how does this fit into the world of pro golf? And then, 
kind of the follow-up there is what excites you about pro golf right now? What concerns you about pro golf? Any, anything like that? Not too much concerns me about professional golf, where it's headed. We've had uh, a great uh, in, infiltration of young, talented, great golfers that are great people, too, that uh, really puts golf in a, a great spot. And uh, I, th- I feel very comfortable about the guys that, uh, that are a big part of the game right now. And this event, though, is a bit of a risk, if you will, because, first of all, golf's never been put on pay-per-view. And second, we've never really taken the risk and had it become so intimate where, where the players are mic'd, where you do get to hear the in-depth conversations between player and caddy, the actual smack talk or or conversations amongst players and what actually goes on inside the ropes. Uh, this, this type of coverage has not ever been done. So it's a bit of a risk that we're taking, but uh, I think that from a viewer standpoint, it's also what viewers crave. By taking it off of uh, telecast and putting it on pay-per-view and getting rid of the commercials, you get to hear the in-between shot, in-between shot conversations that takes place. That again is something that uh, you don't ever get to see, and, but crave as a viewer. A couple of grab bag things before I let you go, just because you know I'm talking to Phil, and I've always wanted to. I've always been sure. curious about Let's these things. It. Let's hear it. So I always love listening like to... Like the leather jacket. That's, right? that's okay, exactly right. What else, what else <laughs> is interesting to you? What, I always enjoy listening to you in press conferences. I always enjoy you're very thoughtful in, in all of your responses. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm curious, if you were to go back to college right now, what would you study and why? I was a psychology major in college. I used the studies uh, to this day um, on uh, human behavior and my kids and yeah. you know I use it all the time my kids know about a lot of these studies they <laughs> they are aware of it uh, and I I think I would study psychology again because I've been so interested in it really? uh, I don't know what job I would ever Dr. really Wilson. do no I don't I wouldn't want to do I wouldn't want to be a psychologist psychiatrist because you're always working out of the negative you're always working with people's problems and that's not uh, that's not really how I live I'm much more positive I don't really uh, enjoy that so I don't know what job I would ever do but I really enjoyed being educated in that field. So you've played professional golf for a long time. You've seen a ton of players. Who sticks out to you as the most underrated player you've seen, the most underappreciated player you've, you've played against? Uh, I don't I don't really have a great answer for you. I think the most underestimated player would be Tiger. I don't yeah. think that people realize how uh, great and play that he... I've seen him do things with a golf ball and hit shots uh, in certain moments that seem the, to be the impossible that, or certainly the improbable, and he became the norm, and uh, he was able to do it with ease. I saw him do that too much throughout uh, <laughs> my career and his career to, to think that, uh, and, I, and it leads me to believe that people don't appreciate uh, the level of greatness he achieved. And the last thing, uh, you know, you, you've kind of seen Tiger's entire career, both from a you know place of of being a golf star when he arrived on the scene. I'm curious, what do you remember about the first time maybe you, you heard about him, you heard, you know, this young guy is coming, that sort of thing, and then what do you remember about the first time you met him? Uh, I remember hearing about him when he played in the as an amateur in the L.A. Open, and there was just a curiosity, you know. Yeah. But we get that, since Tiger, I've had a lot of uh, players come along and say, oh, this kid is great, He's he got into this tournament, this PGA Tour event, and you watch him, and... There are some good players, but nobody ever turned out to be as great as Tiger. So my first time aware of him was when he was in the LA Open as an amateur. Uh, there was a funny line that Sandy, uh, Sandy Lyle said when they said, uh, what do you think of Tiger Woods? He says, I don't know, I've never played it. 
And, you know, it's funny now, <laughs> and, and it's funny how that has come come back to haunt, haunt everybody or him because of how well his career has gone yeah. and, and what a great player he's got. But it goes to show that until that point, and that was at that L.A. Open there at Riviera. So until that point, nobody on tour was aware of how good he was. Yeah. And when he won in 1996 the Las Vegas Open, you could see what was coming. And then the Masters in 97 propelled him to end the game to a whole different level. Well, this is a, this is a stage unlike any other this week that we'll see on Friday. So best of luck. Thank you. And uh, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. All right. Take care. My pleasure. Thanks. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything.